A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Zoe. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's partygate grilling and the latest on Brexit. Then you ask us about the government's asylum policies. For over three hours, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson was questioned by the cross-party Privileges Committee of MPs about whether he intentionally misled Parliament over gatherings at Number 10 during lockdown. Freddie, you were actually at the hearing. Can you tell us a little bit about what the atmosphere was like? Well, yeah, it was very hot. I think journalists were a bit tired. They were expecting what happened, basically Boris Johnson bumbling for three hours. And I don't think we learned much new. But the key thing was that this was Boris Johnson's chance to perform in front of MPs. This was his chance to say to the party, look, this partygate thing, I've dealt with it now. It wasn't right. I didn't like the parliament. We can move on. And he didn't he didn't manage to do that. I think there was a general sense of exasperation in the room. Also, he got quite frustrated as well. And that was quite telling as well. He often got quite irritable when being asked the question. So I don't think it was great for him. I think we'll come on to the Brexit vote. I think that was yeah. that was absolutely pivotal to what he was trying to do yesterday. But yeah, it was a funny atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> they put us all the press sit behind the front table so I had a, a perfect view of Boris Johnson's freshly trimmed hairline. Not great if you want to write, not great for the sketch writers. I felt bad for them. But yeah, no, it was, <laughs> it was a strange one. Yeah. And so you said we didn't really learn anything new. What? How do you think his reputation has been affected coming out of that hearing or do you think everyone just be thinking the same things that they always thought about him since these revelations came out? Yeah, it's a low bar, isn't it? So I think he did come across in quite a a mendacious way. He could clearly try and contort each answer to fit the question. Some of the things he was coming out with were just ridiculous. For instance, you know, I think Bernard Jenkin asked him, why didn't you have mitigations as the guidance says you should do on one of the parties? He's like, well, we did, we did. We had Perpex screens next door. (laughs) That's not, there's a different room. (laughs) At one point he said, I saw the trestle tables in the garden, but I didn't see what was on the trestle tables. It was just full of ridiculous assertions to try and protect the notion that he didn't think at the time and when he stood up in Parliament that the guidance had been broken. So it led him to all these strange contortions and strange ways of him perceiving Downing Street. He spoke a lot about the narrow corridors. So I don't think it uh, did anything very good for his reputation. We already know he's a performer and that's what it was. Yeah, he was equivocating a lot, wasn't he? Sort of wriggling around the questions. There was one part where he said that he 
couldn't remember whether he'd made a joke about this must be the least socially distanced event in Britain. Yeah, it was. It descended into absurdity. Yeah. And so what happens next? What comes out of this? So we don't yet know what the committee are going to decide. It seems to me, and it seems according to their most recent report, that they are going to find Boris Johnson has misled Parliament in some way. It depends whether they it's fine that's reckless, as they put it, or intentional. So that we expect that to be coming out in the next few weeks. And then the key thing is the punishment. Is it over a 10-day suspension from Parliament? If that's the case, then there's a chance that there's a by-election in his constituency in Uxbridge. If not, maybe he'll have to apologise to Parliament, so that'd be less humiliating, and maybe his career could be savable at that point. But if the committee do come out and say that he has intentionally misled Parliament, that's very bad for Boris Johnson. And good in terms of protecting Rishi Sunak's or getting rid of one of Rishi Sunak's main critics. Yes. Okay. Because it could come down to Parliament voting on the punishment that the committee recommends. So that could be, I suppose that in a way, there's two readings of it, isn't there? That it could be good for Rishi Sunak if one of his sort of main rivals and irritants gets knocked out of the picture. But also it could bring the Tory party into division again. I mean, remember what happened when Owen Paterson, when what he'd done went to a vote in Parliament, it brought about the Tories sort of long decline, I think we've been talking about ever since. Yeah, that's when the polling starts to fall off. I mean, the key thing with the Owen Paterson affair was that Boris Johnson whipped them to vote against the punishment. So Rishi Sunak and his ministers have basically said they're not going to do that in this circumstance. They're going to give him a free vote. And that should mean that they will vote through the, uh, the punishment. But let's see. Right. What stood out for you, Zoe, from Boris Johnson's performance? Obviously, as Freddie mentioned, this happened on the same day that Parliament was voting on the Stormont break, which is part of the Windsor framework, the deal that Rishi Sunak recently struck to the new and, create a new and improved Northern Ireland protocol. So I think on Boris Johnson, one of the things that really stood out to me was the fact that he, one of his defences was these parties we had, they were necessary because people in Downing Street were really struggling. It was a really difficult time and we were working at these parties and so what there is a bit of cheese and wine that's Mm. how it's done but this focus on necessity or how intrinsic that was to the working practices in Downing Street is irrelevant because the point of the inquiry is whether he willfully misled parliament Mm. so when looking into that particular element the fact is it does seem that he did ignore advice from officials so Martin Reynolds his principal private secretary told him not to say that guidance had been followed and the rules had been followed to the best of his knowledge and Simon Case also said that he'd never told Johnson that the Covid rules uh, had been followed so I think as Freddie said it looks like they if we're following the evidence as to whether he did willfully mislead parliament it looks like the committee will rule against him in some way and this focus on necessity we already know there was parties in Downing Street nobody the people who think that there was a fair enough excuse will still think it's a fair enough excuse and the people who don't won't do. On the Brexit vote yesterday, obviously it was really interesting. It happened at the same time that Johnson was in committee, which was obviously going to split the attendance in the chamber and also the attendance of journalists covering it. Actually, I was quite surprised. I was in the chamber or I was in the press gallery at how few MPs were there. So there was a lot of build up that this was could be a really big rebellion and it could unseat Sunak. Actually, it was the same old suspects. You had a few <laughs> ERGers, you had Mark France, you had Redwood and they stood up and they gave speeches their speeches weren't groundbreaking Redwood was slapped down quite quickly and then obviously you had the usual DUP interjections Mm. but again it wasn't there was nothing there that people thought could really unseat Sunak so we didn't have any interventions from key Tory rebels so Ian Duncan Smith who 
came out and said he was going to vote against it. He he didn't even show up to the chamber as far as I saw. I remember David Davies was there for a bit, but he just came in and walked out again. We didn't have these key interjections we thought we might have. And then eventually it actually went through. Sunak didn't have to rely on Labour votes. Obviously, there were some Tory rebels and some key ones. We had three former leaders, Truss, Johnson mm. and Duncan Smith. But actually, without key interjections, without key speeches, they look a bit quashed. Yeah, it's not the same as the sort of Brexit wars of the Theresa May years, those nail biting votes mm. and dramatic interventions, like you were saying. Absolutely. That, that was really missing, even though it looked a little bit like in the build up that there might be a bit of difficulty mm. for Sunak. I mean, the DUP had come out and said that they wouldn't vote for it, first of all. It was very conciliatory language, I thought, from Jeffrey Donaldson, mm. despite what they were saying. Then the ERG were a little bit more punchy. They said the Stormont break is practically useless, mm. and that suggested that there may be more of a rebellion than expected. But it seems like Sunak rode it out quite calmly. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things with the vote yesterday was it almost became about something else. If you go through the list of rebels, as Zoe says, then it was actually those who hate Rishi Sunak. It was less so about Brexit. It was about all those people who were either loyal to Boris Johnson or had another reason to disagree with the present government. And that was key because for Boris Johnson, he was going to leave the committee at about 20 minutes into his opening statement, go and vote, go and lodge his dissent with the government, come back, defend himself as the leader of this rebellion and bat off these pesky MPs who were trying to say that he misled Parliament. That didn't end up happening in part because, as Zoe says, the rebellion wasn't as big as it needed to be. Mm. Because the key thing, if you want to look at leaders and leadership changes and whether Boris Johnson can come back or not, is the opinion of Tory MPs. They're the kingmakers in all of this. And if you don't have them on side, then you can't get back. Yeah, and what I thought was really interesting is that this plan, this idea of him looking like he was on his way back and leading the rebels, backfired, didn't it? Because for me, watching, I wasn't in Parliament on the day, I was watching the sort of mainstream coverage of this, and it drew a very flattering contrast between the Conservatives' last but one leader, Boris Johnson, and Rishi Sunak's style of premiership. It showed the sort of chaos and the incessant conversations about the parties from the Johnson years are a thing of the past now and a bit of an embarrassment and something to get over with, whereas Sunak is moving things on by striking sort of deals that most of his party has got on board with and not drawing news attention to himself. We've actually seen very little of him, despite him doing quite a lot recently, not just to do with Brexit, but also the Silicon Valley Bank and other kind of trips abroad and things. We don't see a huge amount of him, but we also don't see very much chaos around the Downing Street operation. Yeah, and that's why we've got Brexiteers in the government at the moment. Steve Baker has basically said to his ERG or his former ERG friends, you need to get over this, you need to move on, this is a great deal, let's bank this advantage and move on. And that's Suella Braverman's in the cabinet. So he's co-opted quite a large part of the Brexit part of the Conservative Party into the government, which sort of quells that dissent. And so it's turning out that his the way that he cobbled his cabinet together at the start was actually yeah. in some ways yeah. quite wise. Mm, uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting that Steve Baker, Northern Ireland Minister, come out to be so supportive of this deal and he's stayed really loyal and he's really proud of this deal as well. And it just mm. it does not only actually split the ERG, who I believe kicked, they kicked him out of the WhatsApp group yesterday. <laughs> but the WhatsApp groups were once so important yeah. as well. It tells you so much more than but it also, just Steve Baker's it also standing. just looks to the public like the ERG have lost a bit of their momentum, really. It looks a bit like they've, if they're divided, it undermines part of their plight, really. I think it was a wise move from Sunak to bring those those ERG figures into his cabinet. And I think, as you said before, Anoush, about the DUP, although obviously they did vote against the deal, they did strike a conciliatory tone. They did say they'd continue working on 
this deal with the government. And I think ultimately the takeaway from yesterday's debate was there wasn't as much of that adversarial language around Brexit as we'd seen before. And ultimately, Sunak came out looking quite competent, really. And we shouldn't let him off the hook too much, though, because Westminster can vote how it likes on these things. Mm. Ultimately, what matters is what happens in Stormont and the DUP have Mm. not come back to the table. There's a few hopeful sort of murmurings that they might consider it after the local elections in May. I feel that's less likely. There's a lot of reasons why the DUP wouldn't want to go back into power sharing that have nothing to do with the Northern yeah. Ireland Protocol even, that are still that still exist. The idea of a Sinn Féin first minister being an obvious mm-hmm. one. And of course, I remember speaking to some EU sources before the Windsor framework was created. And there was this optimistic tone among them. The ERG aren't the force that they once were, like you were just saying, Zoe. But there wasn't much concentration on what happens in Northern Ireland. And Mm. I feel like this is, I mean, we've spoken about this on the podcast before, but this is always the way in which this is spoken about. Actually, that's probably more important than which Tory backbencher votes for the Windsor framework because it affects a whole part of the United Kingdom. Mm. And we actually did have a question from a listener that we never managed to squeeze into You Ask Us about the real life impact of power sharing collapsing at Stormont. And I had a little look into it for this listener. And it effectively means civil servants can only operate within the context of the existing policy direction of the Northern Ireland ministers that set it before they left their posts. And you can't develop new policies or take decisions that might be considered political, which means that you can't you can't set, do anything strategic. You can't do anything new. And a real life example of how this has impact people, particularly on low incomes, is the delay in the rollout of the £400 energy payments that we got here, but not in Northern Ireland. And the, there's not been the necessary public service reform that you might need for an NHS that's in a dire state in Northern Ireland, although it is across the UK, it's particularly bad there. And also they don't have select committees up and running in this period, which means there's a lack of scrutiny for the policies that are already being enacted by departments. So it does have a real life impact. And I think that number 10 would be quite wise to be careful about seeming complacent about Mm. that issue. Yeah, I think you're completely right. But politically, I don't think it's that important for number 10. Most people, we had some polling that we did Mm. last year, I think it was a new show. Most people in Great Britain don't really care about Northern Ireland and that's one of the reasons that we've not had Northern Ireland featuring the Brexit debate as much as it should have. It wasn't there in the 2016 referendum campaign. It's not it's the reason that it's not featuring massively yesterday. It's the reason that many Tory MPs are able to go against what they said they were going to do with the DUP in the past few years. So I think in terms of government and you know the reality on the ground in Northern Ireland, you're completely right, and as we've spoken about it many times before, but the reason that the number 10 won't be too bothered about that is because people don't care. Earlier this week, obviously, we saw a narrowing of the poly between Labour and Conservatives, and I know Ben Walker's written a really good piece on why that might be slightly... Don't, maybe not to read too much into that, but I do think it's interesting. But do read Ben but Walker's do piece. Read, no, do read Ben's piece. <laughs> yeah. As always. But it was interesting. I went to a briefing earlier in the week about the current kind of state of the local elections and the polling... And one of the things that was said was that Boris Johnson's impact, negative impact on Conservative Party polling seems to be wearing off. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of people talk about the impact it's had on the Tories, that there's been all this kind of infighting and instability and successive prime ministers. And I think what is good about the the Brexit deal is that it does make the Tories look more united. And I think in turn that will build support for the Conservatives when they start to look like they're more coherent, more competent, more united. And so, as Freddie said, I do think there is something to be said for the political, although obviously 
very important that we consider the impact it's having on Northern Ireland. I think politically it's a strength for Sunak. That's really interesting. This is probably part of a, another conversation for another time, but I interviewed the polling guru, John Curtis, in an interview that's about to come out. And he was saying that no government ever survives at the ballot box who's resided over a financial crash and mm. that you could count the mini budget and what happened and also the general state of the economy as a financial crash. There is no example that he could think of in this country of a party changing leader after that crash and the impact that the leadership change has on people's public opinion. And Rishi Sunak is seen as someone who is more economically competent than his predecessors. And if you say that that briefing, the idea of the Tories looking more united, even if people don't care necessarily about the detail of the Windsor framework, might add to that presentational change. Mm. After the break, we'll talk about asylum policy. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Us. Our question today is from Nikki. Is it possible, given the politics around the issue, to have a humane asylum slash immigration policy slash policies? So this is a really good question because we haven't managed to talk in great detail about the illegal migration bill that the Tories have introduced recently. And it does seem that this has had the effect that perhaps they wanted, which is making them look tough to the extent of looking cruel on asylum seekers in particular, riling up the sort of usual parts of the left, the liberal left, the campaign groups, the charities, and perhaps trying to fire up their base who are concerned about small boat crossings. First of all, should we should we see whether or not that's worked yet? I noticed that there was some polling recently that showed that still, I think, above 80% of the general public are unsatisfied with the government's dealing of immigration. Yeah, I think the broader context is that immigration is rising in terms of people's priorities. There was an Ipsos index out this week or last week that basically said it's forced now after inflation, the economy, the NHS, immigration. So it is becoming more important. And I think that's why Labour can't just sit back, rely on some urgent questions in the House of Commons are not engaged with the issue. They say they've got a five-point plan or a six-point plan, but they don't talk about it too much. You're not seeing Yvette Cooper go out or write pieces for the, the Sundays or whatever it is and mm. say, we have a solution as well. I don't think they want to talk about it too much because Labour normally has always seed ground on immigration because they think the Tories can always outflank them. In terms of the government, I think it's wise for Sunak politically to go hard on immigration. What Sunak needs to do is to 
convert lots of Leave voters. And at the moment, he's polling really well with Remain voters, less so with Leave voters. I think this is one of the key ways that he can bring some of those 2019 voters back on side. In terms of whether it works, that's a completely different thing. No, I don't think it will work. One of the key problems is that the government do not have return agreements with the country they need to send people back to. But they've got some agreements in place. That's They've got some agreements with Albania, for instance. That's why Albanian immigration across the channel has gone down, because they're able to return them back to Albania. But they don't have them with Iraq, Syria, Eritrea, all these places. They're not going to get them. Mm. So that's why you've got the Rwanda policy, which isn't up and running. It's gummed up in the courts. And even then, there's doubts about the capacity of Rwanda to take lots of people in. So I don't think it's going to work. Maybe they'll say at the next election, give us another five years to implement this, especially if Labour don't want to talk about it. But they've not got much time to get it up and running before the next election. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because what they've done is by focusing on this policy, by making small boats one of those priorities that Rishi Sunak announced at the beginning of the year, and with making such a song and dance about this illegal migration bill, pictures of Suella Braverman visiting Europe, Rwanda and looking really happy as if she's on holiday kind of thing. They've really brought it up the public agenda, haven't they? You're right. It's becoming one of those issues again that people are saying is one of their top issues. And I always think it's a danger for Labour and sort of groups that perhaps want a more... Yeah, want a more compassionate asylum system to say oh well immigration isn't a yeah. big concern at the moment it can become a concern at any time the government can make it so yeah, the papers the broadcasters have to cover government announcements and so if it becomes a priority for them it does become an issue in voters minds of course you're right the risk is that the more people focus on it the more they notice that the government is actually failing on its aims yeah. at the moment I think what's been quite clever and this is what New Labour used to do as well is the government are focusing on asylum seekers so people mm. crossing on boats illegally in inverted commas although actually this is irregular migration you can actually under the European Convention you can actually come and seek asylum in countries and that's one of the problems with this bill that could be one of the sticking points of this bill but what they're doing is they are taking attention off the fact that there is now record immigration people coming into work here and actually in the budget we spoke about this in the budget podcast episode they didn't announce it in the speech in the Commons Jeremy Hunt but it was in the budget paper that they would be <laughs> loosening the visa rules for construction workers for example so they're bringing people in to fill the jobs that we need done But by looking tough on asylum seekers, they are trying to send a message to the electorate that they are wanting to bring down sort of net migration figures, even though these are two different groups of people. New Labour did the same thing. So I was looking at some of the language that New Labour ministers, home secretaries used to use. They would call people asylum cheats, people playing the system. Tony Blair used those words. People filing bogus asylum applications. And they also came up with some quite cruel and controversial policies towards asylum seekers. They were the ones that banned them from working, for example. They swapped their benefits at one point for vouchers to buy essentials. So they didn't have any money coming in that they could choose how to spend, which led to some refugees going hungry and they barred children from asylum seekers from going to mainstream schools as well so all of these red meat to the tabloids while of course they were bringing in a lot of migrants from Europe because of free movement and so it looks like Rishi Sunak is using the same kind of strategy what do you think Zoe? Yeah no I completely agree I think with both of you I think it's really interesting on kind of what you were saying about the Conservatives talking a lot about immigration because it's a difficult thing for Labour to come back on as we say Mm -hmm. the Tories typically look a lot stronger on immigration than than Labour. I also think having brought Suella Braverman into the cabinet and making her the Home Secretary that's been quite a shrewd move from Sunak because he's brought one of the, the someone from the right of the party who's very strong on immigration and basically put them in charge of it and so if it is to fail or any difficulties it's it's laid at her door Mm -hmm. and I think in that way he kind of is slightly 
neutralizing her a little bit because it's like if you care about this so much then you can be in charge of it sort <laughs> yeah of thing. it's very much linked to her as an individual politician that's true absolutely it's very yeah. much her brand so mm. i think it's quite shrewd politically again the word is politically what he's done there i think the illegal immigration bill we go back to the question is it humane there are so many elements in it that aren't humane and i think essentially it isn't compliant with international law and britain typically have been accepting people genuinely fleeing persecution. So there are issues with that. I think, as you say, the Conservatives have gone very strong on this to detract attention away from the fact that we are relying quite heavily on on migration to fill mm. our to fill our vacancies. Labour has a kind of Freddie, you mentioned their 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 plan five or six point. I don't know. I can't remember <laughs> what it is. But part of Starmer's argument is we need to wean ourselves off this dependence on immigration. We need to fill these job vacancies ourselves, and we need an economy that kind of works on its own. And I think that's something that that will resonate. But it does seem like a very ambitious and like long term plan. So it's a very difficult space for Labour to to prepare an answer that is adequate. For the electorate. Yeah, and our question was about a humane policy. And what's really interesting is that Labour, first of all, like you say, Starmer's sort of priority is to try and fill jobs with British workers, which is which party leader has ever not said that, to be <laughs> honest. They have quite, at the moment, they seem to have quite a similar policy to the Tories, really. And the only way that they criticise the Rwanda scheme and also the illegal migration bill is by saying it won't work. They don't talk about the morality of it because they know that the votes are not in that. And But the problem is that when you say it won't work, you have to then say how you would do it instead, eventually. And I can't imagine Imagine anything that's going to be miles away from the system that we already have, which is looking at the shortage occupation list every few months and saying, OK, let's loosen the rules for this sector and then just bring them in. We need more migrants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Labour's key thing is that they're going for growth. That's what they said. That's the second or first mission, whichever one it is. And I don't, I can't imagine them jeopardising that goal by reducing immigration no. numbers. Maybe they do, but I don't think that's what they're going to do. But just on the humane policy point, the, the big problem at the moment is that Asylum seekers aren't being processed through the system. That's why they're in the hotels. And it's worth pointing out that being in a hotel for an extended period of time is a horrible experience. It's awful for people's mental health and their health as well. That They're given, I think it's around £10 a week to live off. Yeah. I was speaking to one charity worker when I was up in Glasgow looking at the, how they're housing Ukrainian refugees. And she was just saying that that you can't expect people to spend months and months in hotels because they're not able to work because... Asylum seekers don't have the right to work. They're not able to build a life or contribute in any way. So it leads to massive frustration. It's very unhealthy and it is inhumane to keep people in the hotels. I think that's the key point. Yes, I was speaking to someone, who, a lawyer representing some asylum seekers in one of these hotels. And they sent me some pictures that I haven't published because they're quite disturbing. But they're of the bed bugs, you know, yeah. the bites from bed bugs. Obviously, the hotel doesn't care about the the conditions that the people are living in because they're not paying guests like you say it's not I think there's a sort of sometimes a bit of a misunderstanding about what it means when asylum seekers are housed yeah, in hotels not the they're not using the spa yeah. yeah and this is one of the problems as well if you live in an area where there are asylum seekers put up in hotels you may think how come they get free accommodation in my town and they don't work there are all of these problems because it creates this perception that they're they're taking something but they're not giving back in the, into the system actually yeah. they're not allowed they're not allowed to, yeah, yeah. Exactly. and the other thing is that all these hotels are mostly in deprived yes, more deprived exactly, areas yeah. in the north of England I think there's only one in the top 10 that host asylum seekers that is in the south maybe most people don't see them but there are communities around the country that yeah. do see where people house in hotels and that, for the migrants for the hotel for the community that's not the optimal yeah, situation yeah, it's they not should right be processed the, the home office is struggling or is not able to process these people judge whether they have a valid claim or not and let them into the country or 
or not because they just don't have the infrastructure in place mm. and that's what's leading to much of the inhumanity at the moment. Yeah. yeah, but it's worth saying there are a few little slivers of humanity even in the Conservative offer. So they recently, we spoke about this on a previous podcast, so I won't go into the detail, but they recently announced basically what amounted to an amnesty for asylum seekers from certain countries, didn't they? Yeah, but did they do that because they didn't have the ability to yes. process them or did they do that out of... of Altruism. Not out of altruism, but I think to basically clear that, exactly. try and clear that backlog quicker. But this was ex- effectively people coming from countries where the likelihood of their asylum claim being uh, approved is yeah. high. So yeah. it's just made it so that they can just fill in a form rather than have the face to face interviews. So there's that aspect of it. And then there is also a provision for a safe and legal route in the illegal migration bill, which is, you know, what a lot of charities have been calling for a route where, whereby people can come legitimately in the sort of language that the Home Office uses so that they don't have to use small boats or hide in lorries or other mm. ways. But the problem with that aspect of the legislation is that it will only come in after the small boats are stopped. So obviously, most people, a lot of people working in this policy area see that as part of the way that you stop the small boats Mm. rather than something Mm. that comes afterwards. But it does exist in the legislation. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to what you were saying about New Labour, Anisha, I remember your piece, it was a great piece, and you were just highlighting how governments treat different migrants in different ways. And I do Mm. think we have a broader hierarchy of refugees in the UK. We do have some schemes. We've got the Hong Kong scheme, the Afghanistan Mm. scheme, which has many fewer than Hong Kong, and then the Ukrainian scheme. Now, those are the routes that the government has decided to let people through. I don't think there's enough discussion about why we choose these routes and choose these countries and not other routes. The Home Office, sorry, the the government might say, okay, it's because we have a cultural or or historic relationship with them. Hong Kong is a former British colony. Lots of Hong Kongers own B&O passports, a British national overseas passport, that is. And then obviously in Afghanistan, we were in the country, the army was in the country for 20 years. So I don't think there's enough discussion about that and why it is that we're letting so many people in from these countries and not others. I suppose it's because of those those ties, like you say, but also I think there is an element of public opinion playing a part in that. And you wrote about this very well in your piece about the Ukrainians housed on the cruise ship in Scotland about the hierarchy of refugees. And even with Ukrainian refugees now, there are questions about what happens to them once these sort of schemes come. For example, the Homes for Ukraine scheme. People can't keep Ukrainians housed in their own homes forever. And a lot of people have been talking to one of our data journalists, Polly Beinman, about their concern about what happens next. And she spoke to one lawyer who actually said that they might start applying for asylum because there's been no clarity on whether they're allowed to go into settled status after some of these schemes have played out. So even with the Ukrainians, where I think there was the weight of public opinion was on the side of allowing them to come to the UK, there yeah. are still questions about their future here. Yeah, I think whenever you have, especially whenever you have a time where there's kind of economic unrest, we've seen throughout history that often a lot of the tension is directed towards these people. You talked about New Labour's language, scroungers or whatever, and that that's directed at people in the UK often who don't work, but also often directed at asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants. And I think... Yeah, I think we can obviously make a good case for refugees from Ukraine, etc., because that's part of our kind of consciousness. Of course, we're allies of Ukraine. But as Freddie said, what about all the other people who are fleeing war-torn countries? And wars have been going on for years and years. And we are effectively saying, yeah, we've got schemes for Ukrainians, but these people, mm. we can't, we can only accept so many of you, or etc. So I think there is a real 
issue, which is that is a historic and political mm. one, which is that we always need a scapegoat and certain people will avoid that, but certain people won't. Yeah, and we are always going to have to choose, obviously, and create routes and create systems and there's going to have to be some form of process. I think one of the interesting policy ideas that's come out of the past six weeks or so, the debate around the illegal migration bill, is if you equalise the system a little bit more but then create a, a refugee cap or an asylum seeker cap that's decided in Parliament or what have you, and maybe that's one way to help deal with the situation. I guess the only thing to say is that as we as we know, as we increasingly deal with war and environmental disasters and stuff, we're going to see more mm. net migration across yeah. the world. And so to talk about the idea of having an asylum cap or a refugee cap, that almost feels possibly slightly like it could be considered eventually inhumane because how can you put a kind of stop on the number of people who need a place of safety? So it's going to become a really tricky, especially as the years go on and we see more and more people needing to migrate for their safety. It's definitely going to become, I think, a much bigger issue and it's going to bring with it some real moral, social and political questions about how we deal with this. Mm. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and Zoe Grunewald. We'll be back on Monday. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.